Brendan McDonough's life is about to change. He's an addict, he's a washout EMT, and he just gets word from his girlfriend that she's pregnant. He's about to become a father, and so he's desperate for one final chance to make something of his life. He decides he wants to join a group of firefighters in Prescott, Arizona, but it's not just any group of firefighters. These guys are training to be hot shots, which is kind of the Navy SEALs of firefighting. The group is led by Josh Brolin's character. They refer to him as Soup, and Soup is constantly teaching the men in this group. Uh, He's constantly casting vision, trying to help them understand the importance of teamwork and trust and precision as they carry out their mission. Uh, Today at Hope, we start a new message series. It's called The Jesus Run. It's going to take us all the way up to Easter. And throughout the course of this series, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus is going to be our soup. He's going to be constantly teaching us things and casting vision and reminding us of the importance of teamwork and trust and precision as we carry out our mission. We're going to pick up the Jesus run in chapter 4 of Matthew. He's walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, sees a couple brothers fishing. He calls out to them, follow me. Goes farther up the shore, sees a couple other brothers fishing. Again, extends the same invitation to them, follow me. And make no mistake about it, when Jesus extends this invitation to someone, follow me, their life is about to change. This language, follow me, it's the language of discipleship. When Jesus calls someone to follow him, he's asking them to consider being his disciple. Everybody say disciple. Now, the Greek word that gets translated disciple, it can mean a pupil, a learner, a student. And so what Jesus is saying is he is the teacher, and he's asking us to follow him to be disciples, to be students of Jesus. Everybody say student. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I told you we're putting together a a phase two team. We're running out of room in this space. And so this team is looking at creative ways to make more space, more room for more people to be a part of what God is up to here as we carry out our mission. And the phase two team is in the information gathering stage right now. Part of the information we're gathering is what's the growth that's happening in the area around us? One of the things we found out Uh, Ankeny, population-wise, is growing by five people every day. Uh, We got some information from the Ankeny schools. They they hire people to run demographic studies and project as best they can enrollment figures moving forward. Over the last decade, this company they hire, they've been 99% accurate with their projections. And so for the next decade, right now this uh, school year, 11,000, just over 11,000 students are enrolled in Ankeny schools. The projection says in the next decade that'll jump to 15,000 students. So 4,000 new students coming into just Ankeny in the next decade. And then you look at what's happening in places like Polk City and Huxley and Bondurant and those communities and schools. There's just a lot of growth, which is good news for a church that's interested in making disciples, interested in helping people become students of Jesus. Speaking of students, did anybody notice Friendly Jesus is here with us today? Uh, Friendly Jesus is going to be joining. He's always here, but uh, particularly during the season of Lent, We're going to have Friendly Jesus showing up in a different place throughout the worship center. So if you would like to play a little fun game with us, we'd encourage you to take a selfie with Friendly Jesus before or after, preferably not during the service. Uh, Take that selfie to the Welcome Center and Angie Rathman, our Connections Coordinator, or someone from her team will give you a sucker as a prize for taking a selfie. Well, it's a dumb dumb, but don't take that personally. 
Also, we'll give you a punch card if you want. And so if you get that punched every week, it's six weeks during Lent, if you get your punch card filled out, we'll give you a grand prize, which will be a drink from Cafe Hope, probably, a smoothie or a coffee or whatever. So uh, kids, we encourage you to do that, and kids of all ages, anyone who wants to, you can play along that way. Students are listening to what teachers are trying to teach them And as great as the schools are in in our area, as passionate and committed as the teachers are in our area, the truth is students rejoice when teachers stop teaching, when when they can get out of there. And even teachers, I don't know that you like being taught a whole lot. I mean, are you looking forward to your continuing ed classes in June and July this summer? Probably not. Let's not have to do that. So we're we're not necessarily all that fond of being students. But I'm guessing all of us have a teacher in our life that was really influential, that we look back on and we say, man, they made a difference in my life. I actually looked forward to going to their class. I had this expectation that I was going to learn something, that it was going to be relevant, that I wouldn't be sitting there in that classroom thinking, when is this ever going to actually connect to my life in the real world? There was a bunch of articles and news stories that came out in January uh, about a class that they're offering at Yale University. It's a, the most attended class in the history of Yale. It's a class on happiness, and this semester, 1,200 students registered for the class. Uh, the actual name of it is Psychology and the Good Life. And so 1,200 students take it, and it's taught by Dr. Lori Santos. They were asking her, why, why is this class so popular? Why are so many people taking it? And she was quick to say it's not because she's a great teacher. In fact, what, what she, her best guess why so many people at Yale are taking it is because to become a student at Yale, you have to sacrifice happiness in high school. You, you have to work so hard to build a resume that's going to get you accepted into Yale that your life actually becomes a little bit miserable. And so once they get to Yale, they're looking for something else, something more, something with more meaning and depth and purpose. One of the students taking the class described her classmates this way. They're anxious, they're stressed, they're unhappy, and they're numb. And so a crowd of 1,200 unhappy, stressed, anxious, numb students show up to a class psychology, and the good life. Isn't that fascinating? So as we start reading through the Gospel of Matthew on the Jesus run, one of the things we're going to notice, huge crowds of people follow Jesus pretty much everywhere he goes. And they're willing to sit on a hill and listen to Jesus teach them things. They're willing to sit on the ground all day long, even even with their children, and They forget about meals. They forget about eating because they're so interested and connected to what it is Jesus is teaching them. Over and over again, the gospel writers will remind us, Jesus taught in such a way that people were amazed by him. They'd never seen or heard a teacher like Jesus before. Who is this guy? What kind of teacher was this man that that people, he says, follow me and people are willing to drop everything leave their jobs, leave the people that they know, leave their community in order to follow Jesus. Jesus is a teacher. He calls people to be his disciples, to be his students. What is Jesus going to teach his disciples? Well, he tells us right away. He's going to teach them how to fish for people. So a couple of things I want to point out about this. This is like Jesus is interested in evangelism. Everybody say evangelism. Now, a couple of things about this. When Jesus says, follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people, go ahead and go to the next slide. 
Follow me is about discipleship, right? Follow me, be my disciple, and I'll show you how to fish for people. I'll show you how to evangelize. A lot of times in church world, we, we say evangelism and discipleship is an either-or. We can either focus on discipleship and growing deeper as individual followers of Jesus. Just don't ask me to talk to anybody else about my faith. That's kind of personal and private thing. Or we can be evangelists where it's all about let's get people baptized or let's get them to pray a, a certain kind of prayer and that's going to get them into heaven and then we can move on to kind of our, our next project. And Jesus is like, that's missing the point. It's both evangelism and discipleship. Follow me. I'll show you how to fish for people. They continually feed each other. And, and sometimes people think of evangelism, it kind of carries some baggage in our world today, evangelism, because a lot of people think evangelism is really how can we scare the hell out of people? Like, like literally, we want to scare you so much about an eternity apart from God that that's what will make you want to say yes to following Jesus. And again, that's missing the point. Evangelism comes from a Greek word that simply means good news. So when Jesus says, follow me, I'll show you how to fish for people. Part of the idea is when a follower of Jesus shows up in a room, when, when a Christian, when a disciple of Jesus shows up, people should be like excited that the Christian is there. Oh good, the Christians are here. This is going to be great. You think that's the way most people respond when Christians are showing up. I think we've got some work to do. Follow me. I'll show you how to fish for people. And they leave everything, they start following after Jesus, and immediately they, they start sharing this good news. And, and in addition to sharing the good news, they actually become good news for the people around them. Here's how Matthew 4 ends. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogue, announcing the good news about the kingdom. He healed every kind of illness and disease. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their disease or sickness, if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. Early on in the Jesus run, when you see what Jesus is up to and, and what he's calling his disciples to be, to be a part of, I don't know how you could describe it any other way than saying, Jesus is good news for everyone. He's good news for people in Israel and for people outside of Israel. He's good news for people who are sick, good news for people who are poor. Jesus is good news for everyone. People are excited when Jesus and his followers show up. Actually, maybe there's a, a more accurate way to state this. Jesus is good news for everyone who wants their life to change. Jesus is good news for everyone who wants their life to change. Like, if you're not really interested in changing anything about your life, if you're just, everything's fine, everything, I, don't, I don't want anything to change, then Jesus might not necessarily feel like good news to you. And that's actually one of the main storylines of this movie, Only the Brave. Soup, his real name is Eric Marsh. He's married to his wife, Amanda. And Amanda's a horse whisperer. She takes horses who've been mistreated or injured or uh, abused, experienced trauma, and she nurses them back to health. I think you could say she does, uh, plays a similar role in uh, her marriage, in her relationship with her husband. Early on in their relationship, Eric and Amanda decide together we're not going to have children, all kinds of reasons for that. They were both recovering addicts, and Eric's job was dangerous, and he's gone for long periods of time, so they just thought the wisest thing for us to do would not be to have children. 
Even though they don't have their own children, Eric is very much a father figure to the men in his company, particularly to Brendan. There's a lot about their stories that intersect. And so, in a very real way, Eric kind of says to Brendan McDonough, follow me, be my disciple, I'll teach you how to be a firefighter. And Brendan is a quick learner. He quickly becomes an asset to the team. He's growing professionally, but he's also growing outside of his job. He's taking uh, money and groceries and diapers uh, to his girlfriend to care for his daughter. He's rebuilding trust in that relationship. He's earning the right to be able to spend more and more time in his daughter's life. And as that happens, he realizes this is it. This is what matters most. And, and he realizes in order to be the kind of dad he wants to be to his daughter, things are going to have to change in terms of his employment. He's going to need a different job. And so one night he goes to Eric and he says, thank you for mentoring me. Thank you for being this father figure. Thank you for the opportunity, taking a chance on me, everything that you've taught me but I need to change jobs and I wonder if you'd be willing to write a recommendation. And Eric doesn't respond too well to that. He kind of gets angry. He starts shaming Brendan and then he storms off, gets into the pickup truck with his wife Amanda to drive home and they have a little bit of a conversation. She's one of the few people in Eric's life who can speak truth to him, who can tell him that change is actually good news. And she wants to talk about it and he doesn't want to talk about it and take a look. Hopefully that's not foreshadowing of your drive home from church this morning. <laughs> Relationships are supposed to change people. And so Jesus says, follow me, enter into a relationship with me, but understand it's going to change things. It's going to change the way you relate in your marriage, to your parents, to your children, to your friends, to your boss, to your employees. It's going to change the way you think about everything. And that's good news for people who want their life to change, but most people don't. Most people want to avoid change. Change is painful. Most people set up their life so that there's as little change as possible. For most people, the only time they're willing to change is when the pain of staying the same actually becomes more than the pain of changing. So you've got to understand this about Jesus. Jesus wants to change everything. Matthew chapter 4 ends, you turn the page to Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus, the master teacher, starts to teach about, here's some of the things that need to change. And he starts with changing people's understanding of what a good life actually is. What is a blessed life? And Jesus says, the blessed life, the good life, is a life of persecution, a life where you're mourning, a life of humility and seeking after justice and peace. Jesus begins to change the conversation on things like anger and adultery and marriage and divorce and money, prayer. Jesus wants to change everything, and that's good news if you're interested in change. And so one of the questions of discipleship is, what in your life needs to change? And are you really interested in following Jesus in such a way that that kind of change and transformation happens in your life? I, I think of that first clip that we watched where Soup takes the men on this jog and they get up into the mountains and he has them look around at hundreds of thousands of acres of forests 
He says, breathe it in, take it in, meditate on it, because once you get into an actual forest fire, you're never going to look at it the same way again. It's not going to be beautiful anymore. Now all you're going to see is fuel for the fire. He's saying that there are things that happen in life that cause our eyes to be open, and we see things that we cannot unsee. So the last thing he says to them is, you've got to decide. You've got to decide if this job is for you. I think there's something similar when it comes to discipleship. When it comes to following after Jesus, we have to decide, do we really want Jesus to open our eyes so that we see things that we cannot unsee? I mean, a disciple sees things they can't unsee. This is a good thing. I mean, it leads to mission. It helps us to see that there is a a better life available to us than the life that we've been living. And once we start to see the depths of joy and love and hope and peace that Jesus wants to offer us, then the way we've been living our lives and the patterns and behaviors that are not all that great and unhealthy in our life, they start to become less and less attractive all the time. We can't unsee this good life that Jesus has for us, but neither can we unsee the people around us who are hurting and in need of help. That's what leads us into mission. I think of my wife, Wendy, several years ago now. She started to see the struggle and the challenges of refugees who come to central Iowa from other countries, and she thought, I need to do something to help, and she started to serve, and she started to love and, uh, this refugee population. I, I think of a group of guys in our church who are kind of the polar opposite of me, they have tools, they know how to use tools, they actually enjoy it, and so they, they got together, they call themselves the Menders, they partner with an organization in Des Moines that lets them know, here are single moms or uh, senior citizens who have projects in their house where things are broken and in need of repair, and the Menders show up and take care of it. They, they couldn't unsee it. And so they just start to help and to serve in that kind of way. I think of Billy and Deanna Fabus. God opened their eyes to the needs of people in Haiti, and they haven't been able to unsee it. This week, Billy and their daughter Amelia have been down in Haiti, helping them, bringing good news to them, being good news for them, fishing for people. I think of three women at Hope in 1996. They were worshiping at the West Des Moines campus, and God gave all of them kind of simultaneously this vision for what now we call Ruth Harbor. It's one of our mission partners, and it's this project that we're going to be talking about throughout the season of Lent. Their eyes were open to the needs of moms who had, uh, well, young women who were about to become moms because they had unplanned pregnancies. And so they opened this home to help them throughout the pregnancy, but also in the months after the birth of their child. And now our project is to help expand that ministry. Many of you remember the McCoy septuplets. 20 years ago, the McCoy septuplets were born. Now their parents are empty nesters, and they don't need this giant seven-bedroom home in Carlisle. And so we're working with Ruth Harbor to purchase this home so that it can be used for their ministry. It'll be able to double the number of women they're able to help and serve. And so you'll hear more about it throughout this season of Lent. You can go to the uh, website, uh, home, uh, a home of Hope is what we're calling it, and you can read all of the information pray about this ministry, pray for this ministry. Maybe this is going to be something you can't unsee in a place where you can start serving and helping people, but we'd also like you to prayerfully consider maybe contributing financially so that we can purchase that home. Follow me, Jesus says. I'll teach you how to fish for people. Jesus is the teacher, and in Jesus' day, the best teachers were called rabbis. And their students, their, every rabbi had disciples. See, so these disciples, these students would 
follow the teachings of their rabbi so closely that the phrase developed, the idea is to become covered in the dust of your rabbi, that you would walk so closely in step with your teacher and the life that they were were living that you would get covered in their dust. Now think about what that would mean if you were to literally walk in the steps of Jesus, that you were to pattern your life after the life of Jesus and get covered in the dust of Jesus, your rabbi. Part of what I want you to understand, and some of you are going to see it today and some of you won't see it today, and that's fine. If you really want to be a disciple of Jesus, if, if you say yes to this job, to following Jesus, to allowing him to open your eyes to things that you will not be able to unsee, you got to understand Jesus' call, follow me, is a call to radical discipleship. And I just want to talk a little bit about that in the time that we have left. One of the teachers in my life whose class I looked forward to, I would never skip, I would never miss, I always believed I was going to learn something new, was my Old Testament professor, Dr. Della Martyr. And one of my favorite classes in seminary, we spent an entire semester studying the book of Amos. And some of you are like, I didn't even know Amos was in the Bible. It's this minor prophet, when's the last time you read Amos? But we took a, a semester to do it, and Dr. Delamarty could just make the Old Testament come alive. Chapter 4 of Amos has this subtitle, Israel's Failure to Learn. So before Jesus in the Old Testament, God is the rabbi, God is the teacher, And the people of Israel are God's students, and they're supposed to be walking after the ways of God, but they've gone astray. They've gone after their own path. And so five different times in Amos, God says, here's the lesson for you in order to get you back to following me. And five different times, the people fail the test. God says, you still refuse to return to me. And so in Amos 4, they get their grade or an indictment, however you want to talk about it. Let's read together what God says. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. Don't you wish you had read Amos earlier? That's kind of fun, isn't it? Uh, What I want you to focus in on are the phrases that we've got highlighted there. Instead of taking a look at the world around them and seeing people who needed help and then acting to help them, by the time we get to Amos, the people of Israel were living in such a way they actually made life worse for the people who needed help. And that goes against everything that God had been teaching them. The primary story of the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus, a God who rescues And all along the way of this exodus, God's been saying to the people of Israel, when you get to the promised land, I want you to take care of widows and orphans and foreigners who are living among you, because that will help you remember that's who you used to be. God says, I want you to leverage everything you have, all your resources, authority, power, influence, wealth. Use it to help the people around you who are in need of help. This is who I want you to be. It's what it means to be the people of God. But by the time we get to Amos, they've forgotten who they are. And so God says, here's what's going to happen. Here's verse 2. The sovereign Lord has sworn this by his holiness. The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. And historically, this is what happened. Uh, We took a road trip, our family, last summer. We went out to the East Coast, and as we were driving out there, my son Dalton and I were listening to a podcast on 
the history of the Assyrian Empire, because why wouldn't you? And I know, we did. And part of what we were learning as we were uh, listening to that podcast was these kings of the Assyrian Empire, they, they were serious empire builders, and they had a, a strategy for how they're going to build their empire. They'd send in their army, they would conquer territories, regions, cities, and then they would take as captives the people of that land and march them back to Assyria to live in exile. But their strategy was more than just doing that. They wanted the word to spread that they were using these fear tactics and humiliating tactics and violent tactics. They would take fish hooks and put it in the noses of the captives and in the jaws of the captives and in the lips of the captives and they would drag them back. They were literally fishing for people. And God used these kings of Assyria and also Babylon to make a point to the people of Israel. Throughout the book of Genesis, God says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the people around you. All throughout the Exodus, God says, remember, I'm a God who hears the cry of people who need help, and then I show up to help them. That's who I want you to be. But instead of doing that, the people of Israel turned inward, and they, they hoarded the blessing. It's just for us, and God likes us more than God likes you. And they were mostly interested in feeding themselves and comforting themselves and taking care of themselves. And they ended up treating the people around them who could really could have used their help. They treat them the way the Egyptians treated the Israelites when they were slaves. And so God says, all right, if that's really who you are going to be, then I'll, I'll kick you out of the promised land and you can go live in these foreign territories and you can worship their foreign gods all day long if you want. And through the prophet Jeremiah, let's read together what God says to them. This is Jeremiah 16, verse 16. Read it out loud with me. I am sending for many fishermen who will catch them. Fishers of men, kings like Sennacherib, Ashurbanipal, and the kings of the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire came into Israel, came into Judah, carried them away with fishing hooks into captivity. God used these fishers of men to remind God's people this is who you are supposed to be, people who help the people around you. Let me say that again. God uses fishers of men to remind God's people, this is who you are supposed to be. What does this have to do with the Jesus run? Jesus' language in Matthew 4 is very intentional. It is purposeful language. It's more than just kind of a cute play on words. Hey, there's some fishermen, follow me, I'll teach you how to fish for people. No, Jesus is building his kingdom. And remember, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. In Jesus' kingdom, he's not building his kingdom, his empire, the same way the kings of this world build theirs with fear tactics and violence. Jesus is building his kingdom by saying, the greatest will be the servants of all. He's building a kingdom by saying, we're going to use the most powerful force in the universe, the power of love, to change the way people relate to one another. He says to his disciples, I want you to follow me. I want to show you how to fish for people because I need you to do this, to use your influence and authority and power and wealth, every resource available to you to help the people around you who are in need of help. Follow me. 
I'll teach you how to fish for people. I will open your eyes, and you will see how much God loves you, and as God love, God's love fills you up, your eyes will be open, and you will see things that you can't unsee, and that's going to, the love of God is going to compel you to go to people who need to know about that love and who need help, and you can become the hands and feet of God. You can become love and grace and mercy to those people around you. Follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. I want to show you one more clip from this movie, Only the Brave. I think it's actually a pretty powerful picture of what does it mean to be the church. Take a look. Pretty amazing. Their job that particular day, the Granite Mountain Boys, was to clear a path and, and create a line that would stop this destructive force so they could save a centuries-old tree. Important. There's meaning and purpose to that. We're told that the church is supposed to be a, a light to the nations, to take God's salvation to the farthest ends of the earth. That's a pretty big job, pretty big responsibility. And it starts with Jesus saying to some fishermen, follow me. And then he adds more disciples and more disciples, and they follow him. And after they've been following him for a while, he says this to them, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to use you to build my church. And all the powers of hell will not overcome it. Do you know anybody in your life, anybody, in your, anybody around you, who there are things going on in their life, it feels like there's just this massive destructive force trying to take them out or take out their marriage or destroy their relationships or their hopes. You ever feel like that's happening in your own life? Jesus is our defender. Who can be against us? He is Lord and he reigns and he has overcome. Let's stand and let's sing about this God who has the power to change everything.